0: BLOB TALK RADIO
1: archives and beyond blog talk radio this is your host bernice alexander bennett and i want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the national archives and beyond this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen learn and take action If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, please continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Well, I am happy to bring you this special show today on the Black Loggers of Wallowoc County, Oregon. Now, how many of you have taken time to research the social history of the ancestors left? Well, in 1923, the Bowman Hicks Lumber Company of Missouri built Maxwell, excuse me, Maxville, a logging camp in Wallowa County, Oregon, and brought 40 to 60 African-American loggers as part of the labor pool. This project uses genealogy research methods to reconstruct the social history of these workers. Dr. Pearl Alice Mosh is a retired foreign policy expert and now spends all of her time doing research and historical community research she currently is working on her father's memoir and assisting other descendants of the original loggers to find their roots she is an active member of the Walla, oregon historical society and the African American Genealogical Society of Northern California. So let me give a very warm welcome to Doctor Pearl, Alice Marsh, to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Doctor Marsh. Well, thank you so much, Bernice, and it's Pearl. Okay, Pearl. Well Pearl I'm just like everybody else. I want to know why did you decide to explore the social history of the Wallowa County, Oregon community?
2: Well, there were two two reasons, uh, three reasons. One is I knew that we had a unique history because we were a logging family, an African-American logging family in the Pacific Northwest. And people used to say, you're from Oregon? I did not know there are any black people in Oregon. Don't even start telling them that you were loggers. So that was number one, that I, I knew we had an interesting history. Number two, I've been doing genealogy research for a long time and been standing at that wall for a thousand years and just got tired of just standing at the wall. And three, online resources have made it easy to construct a genealogy of small communities. And that's what I want to discuss today. But I did uh, some years ago, like in the early 90s. I knew my these loggers had a story, so I recorded my father and some of his fellow workers, and so I have a rich memoir from them. And now I'm putting the meat on that whole story, the social history.
1: Wow. Well, it's very interesting that you you have that recording. So many people don't even make a recording, so that's wonderful. And then to say that you're putting some meat on that history, well, take us through your process because others may certainly want to replicate what you have done. So just tell us, give us your kind of step-by-step process for uh, reconstructing the community and then tell us the sources that you used.
2: Well, as I said, uh, it was a small company town, so my community was finite. It was 40 to 60 African-American families, and I went to the 1930 census. I mean, I've been dependent on the first cut on public records. went to the 1930 census on Ancestry.com, and I'm not proselytizing for Ancestry, but that will be kind of my online reference, and pulled up all the family names. I also went through my father's memoir and and pulled out names to confirm others. So I wound up with a nice database of these names. So then the question was, how do I research these individuals and begin to construct the social history of that community? Because everyone talks about the community sort of as objective historians. And I thought, I'm going to use a genealogy approach. So I went to Ancestry.com. And I set up a family tree with Bowman Hicks Lumber Company as the father. And I think I put Mulawa County as the mother. I don't know, one way or the other, but at that. And then underneath that, I put all of the surnames. And I had to actually go back and reconstruct that because I, maybe I can tell you about that later. Because you have to keep the names attached to that as the as a father rather than their own biological because it wanders you off in all kinds of places. But anyway, so then I went and started just filling in to those shaking leaves the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the census records from all of their loggers and going into the census records and seeing who was the logger, what occupations did they hold, who were their wives, who were their children, uh, where were they born. Where did they migrate to? Did they go back and forth? So over you know the span of of those nineteen thirty and nineteen forty census records, I have a real rich database of these African American lawyers, and I'll tell you that the one thing that's so important about this, oh, I'm sorry, can I just go back one second? Of the second piece, yeah, the second piece that is very important is that by at least coming up through 1940 I was able to identify some descendants. You know I looked and saw where was the last place Jesse Lankford lived just an example. Well Jesse Lankford went to Spokane Washington I mean Tacoma Washington so I said well he named his son Jesse maybe his son is still alive in Tacoma so I went to the White Pages there was Jesse Lankford III in Tacoma. So I called him, and that put me in touch with that descendant. And just then through word of mouth through other descendants, including you know my own relatives, I've been able to form a group of about, I'd say, 10 to 12 informants on which to build this memory project. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so then, um, let's see. Let's see, I'm sorry, I did bring, so anyway, um, then with, so then with Ancestry, it has some tools, it probably has more than I can, than I know, but you can start a story. So I thought, I have to start interacting with these descendants, but I need to give them something. They bring a lot of enthusiasm to it, but what can I do? So I take my laptop and a portable printer and I went up to Portland, Oregon to interview a group of them and I, on the spot, constructed their family tree and interviewed and got stories. And what was interesting is that um, there was some, I don't want to call them myths, but some erroneous history that has been told about Wallowa. One was that the blacks had to live in a little segregated camp. Well, there was a camp of five houses, but African-American loggers lived all over town. Uh, this is in the 30s and 40s. Another was that African-American loggers only did cut logs, the most dangerous. Well, in fact, they were had other jobs beside log cutting, including working in the sawmill, And there was at least one logger who uh, the head of Bowman Hicks Lumber Company, the superintendent, actually set him up in his own uh, log hauling company. So he owned two logging trucks so that he could bring logs out of the woods. So, you know, it's those kind of things that I'm collecting, those bits and pieces of history from folks where I can go back and – kind of reconstruct and tell the true history of that community. I'll just tell you one more thing. Uh, one of my mother's good friends, we were, the, at the end, the only black family in town. And so one of the stories that got circulated, uh, one of my mother's close white friends, was named Pearl, and, we, you know, she was a wonderful friend. So when I went up there a few years ago, the story was that not only did she midwife my birth, but I was named after her. Well, the real truth is I was born in a hospital in La Grande, and I was named after an itinerant preacher's daughter in Arizona. So, (laughs) you know, you hate to bust people's bubbles, but my goal is to really tell our true history up there. Um, Right, right.
1: Well, I have a question for you, though. You say, you know, you really work to dispel the myths. But where did they come from? Where did some of these stories come from in
2: the beginning? I don't, you know, first of all, the last loggers left there in the 50s. And so there were no black residents there to carry the history. And so well-meaning, I'm sure, but the history has been carried forth by other voices who don't mean to distort the history but but they are you know they don't know the whole history. And so that's how it started and how it's continued. And now there's been other projects that have gone back and kind of reinforced those um, misperceptions or those, you know, historical so I'm
1: on okay. this genuine
2: quest to go and straighten it out. Okay. Tell the story but tell it truthfully is what you're saying. Yes, and the way to do that is we need to tell our own stories. Yes, I mean that's my other lesson: is that we need to tell the stories. Can I just tell you one other thing about how this this strategy works? And then maybe I don't know if there are questions or if I need to keep talking. I um, am planning a research trip to Louisiana because I have to find the original sawmills. Because all of these loggers came out as they call them company men. And um, and I traced it back to some sawmills in Louisiana, so I'm going down there, and I call this guy who's very eager to cooperate with me, and he mentioned that in all of the sawmill records, African-American and white workers were listed by name in company records, but for some reason all of the Mexican-born workers were just listed by numbers, so nobody has ever known who they were. So... Using a genealogy approach, I went to the 1920 census records for Rapide Parish. I typed in born in Mexico. I put in uh, the industry, sawmill workers, and up popped a good 40 or 50 names of the Mexican families that were there as sawmill workers in Rapide Parish in the 20s and 30s. So this is a real tool. Yeah, this is a real tool for reconstructing what I I don't like to say lost communities because we lost them. They're not kind of lost historically, but how to reconstruct these lost communities.
1: Right. Now, there is a question coming out of the chat room. Do you have the records from uh, of Bowman Hicks Lumber Company? Do I have what? the records from the lumber company, the Bowman-Hicks Lumber Company?
2: I haven't come across them. And I'm suspecting that they may be buried in, at least records are buried in the public offices there in Wallowa County. I'm going up there in uh, this summer for a research trip. But the granddaughter of the superintendent, is still alive, and she was a good friend of my oldest brother. They were in the classmate, and she's also a librarian. So she, and she's older, so she knows a lot about um, the black workers that were there, where they lived, where the houses were. She's a rich resource for me in that regard. But I have to track their Bowman Hicks. Some history on the internet, but I don't have their records just yet.
1: Right. Well, there's another question coming out of the chat. This is from Selma. Hi, Selma. Uh, Did all of these families come at one
2: time? No, that's that's the migration story. Bowman Hicks was a very aggressive uh, lumber company out of Missouri, and they had mills in Louisiana, Arkansas, I think in Mississippi, Texas. And so when they expanded up to the Pacific Northwest, They just went back to some of the old mills that they had shut down and brought the original black and white labor force to Oregon. Uh, The original houses were actually, um, what do you call them, train cars, you know, like cabooses and things. Yes. Yes. Uh, Those were the original houses were cabooses. There, There are a couple of them still available in the museums. And then, because the lumber, the labor market was growing so rapidly, um, they needed more workers. And one of the easiest ways to get workers is to have families send back and get their relatives. So if you look at the yeah. pattern, you got Hosey Lowry comes, then he sends back and gets his his brother George Lowry, and then on and on. My father, in fact, wasn't the first in our family. My mother's father, Joe Patterson, was there. And then my dad followed Joe Patterson out there. So that's the pattern you get, is the original logger and then family follows.
1: Now, you know, I know you are reconstructing the whole social history of this community. When the families migrated, did they already have schools set up for the children? Or did the children stay in Louisiana with, with extended family members?
2: You know, most of the loggers that came early had their families. Um, there were some bachelors uh, that lived in, they called it a hotel, but it was really a boarding house there. And they had separate schools, which is really strange in a way. But they had a little black school and a little white school. So the schools were segregated. hmm And um, what about
1: medical I, care?
2: Oh well, uh, well there, the there was a town. They you no, know, originally they had doctors in that little town. But you know, we're talking about medical care back in the 30s and and 20s. Yeah. So so the company had doctors there, and they you know they built the school. There was a clinic, um, but the real medical care was down in the main town of Rulawa, or the hospital was in La Grande. We had one logger I remember that had an appendicitis appendix erupt and Mm -hmm. of course by the time they got him 50 miles to the hospital it was too late Um, so you know medical care was of the time
1: yes 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 now there's another question coming out of the chat were the black workers paid the same for the
2: same job um you know, the the only reference I have and is that the black workers were paid well. Uh, they were log cut logs. They were paid by the board foot. And there were a lot of logs coming out of the woods at that time. I don't think they were discriminated against in terms of how much they were paid per board foot. Um, I also should mention they had a union. Uh, my father helped organize a union in, in um, McNary, Arizona before he left there. And then when they went up to Oregon, they, both the black and white workers formed a union. So they had some wage and uh, workplace protections through the union.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you found or at least you trace or went back to see where the workers lived and that they lived in Rapese Parish. Did any of them come from any of the other, uh, say, lumber parishes of Louisiana?
2: Well, what I'm going to do, the the original loggers came from Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, okay. and Texas. Um, okay. And the first company that hired them was Bowman Hicks Lumber Company. Now, in the history of Bowman Hicks, they bought up other sawmills in those states, and so mm-hmm. my purpose of doing this southern trip is to see um, what's the trail. You know, my great my grandfather started out what's called the Katy Lumber Company in um, oof, I just blocked the name of the town, but in Louisiana, but Katy got mm-hmm. sold. To Bowman Hicks, and that's how my grandfather got to Arizona, and then he followed Bowman Hicks to Oregon. So I need what I when I'm I'm I have a um, group interview that I've organized that's coming up in a few weeks of these descendants, and one of my first questions, where I can't find the name of the company, in the um, census records is where did your father work before he came to Oregon? know, what was accomplished mm-hmm. before Bowman Hicks, or was Bowman Hicks the first? There's a book called uh, The Tribe of Black Ulysses. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, I came across it. And it's this very, very thorough history of African-American loggers in the South. I mean, uh, uh, sawmill workers in the South. And it turns out that African-Americans was the largest workforce, sawmill workers, was the largest workforce outside of of, uh, agriculture in the South at the turn of the century. So I thought our family was this isolated, little peculiar, you know, historical fact that we were black loggers, but there were lots of black loggers that left the South. I've come across references of black logging communities, well, throughout the, the uh, West, but also up in Minnesota and those areas, that there are these small little community loggers. Now, it was a, I don't want to say a ruthless industry, but it was an industry that, well, let me put it this way. It was an industry that didn't care much about what it left behind. So a lot mm-hmm. of these small sawmill towns, they just cut, um the m- lumber uh you know sold it out and then shut down the towns and moved on mhm
1: mhm and then just kind of left it barren too because they're cutting down the the lumber in the town too, <laughs> what's going oh, on yeah. I mean, but i noticed yeah. that there's a a link that has been posted in facebook by stephanie the early sawmills at stables and loring
2: louisiana yes loring louisiana yes Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so she I was think just Bowman have been at Loring. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. huh. And it's interesting that you would mention uh sawmills because when people think of the South and they think of Louisiana, they either they'll think of the sugar plantations or they'll think of the cotton, but they're not thinking about the the the, the timber industry and the sawmill and, and what that meant in the community.
2: Yes, and I think particularly um, in the early part of the centuries that the the there was a transformation in the processing of lumber, of timber in these sawmills, and mm-hmm. I can't recall the the specific uh, technological transformation, but it radically reorganized how the industry ran. So beginning like in the nineteen ten, nineteen twenty, that era they started just sucking labor off the farms into sawmills. Well, one, you know, the vagaries of farming in the South as an African-American were really tough. My uh, grandfather, my great-grandfather, a total of 640 acres, and my grandfather had 80 acres, but they couldn't thrive off of that, couldn't make a living because of the way the price structures, talk about, you know, segregation. So um, whites at the market wouldn't buy African-American produce until the price dropped out. So there was real incentive for young men to leave farming. And also, mm-hmm. you know, the Ku Klux Klan, that's how my uncle left, my father's brother left, because the Ku Klux Klan was, they called it riding. So they had to spirit him out of town. So the combination of the economy, agricultural economy, and the Ku Klux Klan kind of making it impossible for uh black men to live there, and then the demand for labor from the sawmills really created that environment for this burgeoning um, new workforce of sawmill workers
1: right, and this is such an interesting industry and so but we're going to take a a quick break, come back, and continue to talk about the uh, logging industry and Stephanie has uh, put in another resource Louisiana logging railroads and uh, she put in the link www.america-rails.com so that for any individuals interested in learning more about Louisiana logging railroads but we'll take a quick break and come right back Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can usually join me every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy, and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You have been listening to Dr. Pearl Alice Morsh discuss her research strategies, to examine the social history of a large, or for, I shouldn't say large, but a small logging community in Oregon. The lines are open, by the way, for those of you that might want to call in with a question. In the meantime, we're going to take it back to Pearl Alice Marsh so that she could continue to tell us about her methodology and also discuss what she has been doing as far as finding the descendants and her plans for additional interviews with them. Back to you, uh, Pearl, so that we can hear more about your research.
2: Okay. There are two things I would like to discuss uh, now. One is really finding the descendants and uh, working with them, kind of a, co-collaboration with the descendants, and then collaborating with uh, with the Wallowa History Center and other history centers of the, like in Louisiana that I'm going, going to be working with. Um, in terms of the descendants, as I said, what I have done, my my strategy has been to identify where the logger died. And... Some of them died in Washington, some in Oregon, you know, and I can tell by county from the death records, some in California, some went back home. I have some that are in Texas. And so I I go to those areas and through whitepages.com and, and local uh, community, try and find the surnames and then see if I can locate individuals. I'll tell you one other resource that I forgot to mention are the public member trees on ancestry.com. I have searched I will find one of my logger names and I will search them on the public member trees. And a number of times now I have been contacted back by individuals who are related to that person. Um, I had this one this one logger named Fred Samuel And so I put him out on the public member tree. Uh, This uh, researcher responded back. She didn't know where he went. She didn't know who he married. She didn't know if he had children. And one, I was able to go back and find where my logger, Fred Samuel, came from. And two, I was able to give her information on his wife, his daughter, know what he was doing in Oregon. So that has been a real a treat to be able to collaborate on that public member trees on Ancestry.com. Um, the other is that the the local Wallowa History Center, there are people there that have been plowing through those old newspapers and stuff for years, but they never had any way to connect with how what to do with references that came across for African-Americans. They couldn't contextualize it the same way. So I have a small group up there that we share information back and forth that are sent me pictures and send me documents, send me newspaper articles, all on um, on the on the black communities. So that oh, that great. is turning out to be a yeah a real treat. And then let me just, you know, I don't mean to be too scattered, but one other thing I do is I I collect photos. And we've had these photos that have been floating around forever and no one knew who they were. So whenever I go to interview a descendant, I take all of these photos, I give them a set actually, and, and see if they can identify people. There was this one little group of three black girls and a little white boy. And so I was interviewing this uh, woman in Richmond, California, and when I put the picture down in front of her, she said, oh, that's me, and that's my sister, and that's my cousin. So we were able to, we haven't identified the little white boy yet, but we're able to give names to these black kids, you know, uh, who live there. I mean, I like giving them names. These are not just, you know, just images that these are real people, and I'm doing that yeah. with other pictures that I come across. So I take them with me. I say, "Do you know this person?" Oh, I just have one other thing: is what's in a name? Okay, there's mm-hmm. this notorious couple named Jim forspot, Jim and Weedy Fourspot, and there's no place could I find a record of Jim and Weedy Fourspot. So I did a research trip up to Portland, Oregon recently, and I started talking and talking and talking, and finally somebody said, "I think, I think that was his name was James Williams." Well, it turns out that was his real name. Now I don't know why they called him Four <laughs> and I don't know why they called his wife Weedy. But not only did, did someone recognize their name, their actual name, then they sent me over to meet with his grandson. So I have a pretty oh, that's exciting,
1: wonderful, party.
2: yes. So each one of those is an opportunity to collect the story, to collect photos, to collect documents. I mean, it's. I'm really happy with what I'm doing.
1: Oh yes, I don't it sounds to like sound, you have the working of a wonderful book
2: too. <laughs> well, I think there's some publications for sure out of these. I want to publish memoirs. I love the idea of people's spoken word. Um, When I wrote up my father's memoir, I thought, you just can't beat this um, in terms of just, you know, speaking the experience. And so I'm going up to Sacramento and putting together a group of seven descendants. And I'm actually going to hire someone to record verbatim and give me a transcript of the meeting. And then I want to massage those into memoirs and published their actual memoir of the child in Maxville, you know, their father. I am just so happy. I just wish I was 40 years younger.
1: (laughs) Yes, but you know, retiring and and having this as a project will make you younger. I mean, it's just so exciting. And I just feel, feel your energy uh, just going through this entire process, and I, I absolutely love it. So what else can you tell us about your project?
2: Well, I think what I would like to share about the project is, um, I don't know how much more I can share about those loggers, but I'd like to talk about the methodology a bit, because I think this methodology can be used to reconstruct all kind of communities where people have lost touch.
1: I, okay, but well, father... I have a question for you, though. Before you do that, oh. there is a question coming out of the chat. And the question okay. is, why did the people leave?
2: Leave uh, Maxville the and community. Willowa County? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, uh, World War Two drew a lot of them to the shipyards where they were making a lot more money and the work was a lot less dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. That was the number one driver to pull people out of, of that community. Now, in terms okay. of people who lived in the community, a lot of them left and went to Grand, where there was, like a real black community with cafes and churches and stores and stuff. They just didn't like the isolation of Maxville. But the the thing uh-huh. that, that broke the city, broke the town in terms of the numbers of people was the uh, World War II and the shipyards. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So now let's tell us more about your methodology.
2: <laughs> well, I am really encouraged by this process. I don't know if, if um, Angela Walton is online, but she'll catch up at some point. She was my hero when I was trying to go through the National Archives, you know, horrible microfilm things, and you had to go through the soundex deck files. Oh, my goodness. And now you just follow the shaking leaves. And so I think that this is a way for all of us to go back and reconstruct the social history of these little communities. And it doesn't have to be super elaborate. Anything you can put together Works at my um, genealogy group, the Northern California Genealogy Group, our president came from a um, small coal mining town, I think in Indiana, where there were black workers there in the twenties. Well, you know that can be reconstructed. it can be a church community, all kinds of things that we can bring back to life and and um, you know and contribute to the history of, of our people and the history of these communities. Um that's real important. Like I said, there's no trace of the African American loggers in Wallawa County at this point. But now mm-hmm. I can bring it back. And others can that's bring right. it back. That's right.
1: Well, that's yes. right. Uh the opportunity is certainly there for a lot of people, just as you said, looking at coal mining communities. Um, and as you mentioned, the logging communities. But certainly, you can ask those questions: What did they do? When when did they arrive? And then just continue, as you said, to just look at the occupations and look at the companies, because the information is there.
2: It's there. It really is there. And you can you can <laughs> you can begin to track down descendants. What I'm one of the things I'm hoping to do, Bernice, is to. to to draft this up as maybe a little research guide on genealogy based uh, community research. Um, yes. Because I, I, and one of the things I have here in my lap pages of individual biographies from all the black loggers that were up there, each one of them. Uh, I have a little story about each one of them. And that I'm just going to expand that as I meet people and get it published. Uh, So that, like I said, so that all of this comes back to life as our history.
1: Yes. Now, when uh, looking at the individual uh, descriptors of of the people there, have you picked up a trend as far as the age group of the loggers and the length of time that they were involved in
2: the industry? Yeah. If you go back and look at the – hang on one second – If you go back and look at the original loggers, almost all of them were born before 1900. So these are Mm -hmm. men who came to Willow County in in their prime. You know, they were in their 20s, they were in their 30s, and they were, you know, really physically fit to do this work. And then you Mm -hmm. had others coming in who were, you know, like born from 1900 to 1920. That was the next generation. Um, logging mm-hmm. was really tough on the body. I mean, my father was a, a, a logger. So you know, a lot of people, a lot of men didn't endure um, yes. as well. But yes, mm-hmm. that was kind of the cohort was starting in the late 1890s. In my father's memoir, if I can digress a section that I, I've just finished, he talks about um, starting out with the cross-cut saw and what it was like for men to have to work as partners on a cross-cut saw. And I'm telling you, who was a good partner, who was a bad partner? It was just like, you know, that was the uproar in the community. Who could you saw with? And you could put two good saw cutters together, but they didn't make a good team. And then they Mm -hmm. went from the the cross-cut saw, the manual cross-cut, to the two-man power saw. And that was another challenge of trying to figure out who could cut and, and who, you know, who to partner with. And lastly came, I think it was like in 1950, the one-man saw, which introduced its own technological challenges to um to the loggers. On how do you work as a solo, not as a, with a partner to fell a, a tree, but by yourself to do all of that wedging and cutting and you know, leaning and so forth. So it's um, there's a there's a lot more to discover as I go forward with this.
1: It is a lot more to discover, and and it's quite interesting that your father uh, in his memoir would talk about the teamwork. Obviously, that certainly requires something when you had one man on one side and one man on the other, and they're pushing and pulling back and forth uh this this is something that i'm i'm sure he told you a lot of stories about that uh, but it it is just so interesting i i just never even thought about that but she's right it, teamwork was required and i guess you could talk about well what would make a good team and then as the industry changed and the technology changed if you will to the point where it was a one man Uh, operation it certainly is something else to to look into well did you Mm -hmm. see any 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 trends as far as the the surnames where i mean you said one person would send home and another family member would come but did you see whole families uh cousins uncles and what have you coming in or was it mainly single families and and just the neighbors coming in
2: No, um, I, I am, I have them kind of clustered by surname for some of the larger families. They're, they're the cooks. And, um, so let's see, uh, Bob Baggett was one of the original loggers. He was like the old man in the camp. His name was Bob Baggett and and he had a job. He was like superintendent of the African-American loggers and, Now, the story about how he and Miss Lily got married varies. But anyway, she was a, quote, mail-order bride. I don't know how Mm. she was recruited to come marry him, but Miss Miss Lily came out and married Bob. Well, Miss Lily became the anchor then for her brothers and her sisters to come out. So her brother Willie Cook, Frank Cook, Alec Cook, they all came out to Maxville as well. They they didn't like logging, so they didn't stay in logging. But that's one one family. The Lowrys, it well I'll call it Lowrys Trice, was a whole other big family that came out of Arkansas, and um, and it's the same kind of story, you know. Hosey came. Miss Ella Trice came, and then others followed. So there are stories about those families, how they left agriculture and farming and decided to go um, into logging. So there are families like that. Ours isn't a big family, but the Patterson Marsh family is another one. Uh, we, mm-hmm. My grandfather was the last logger that, that was up there. Oh, I know, there's, there's the Hart King family that is another one that you see the same pattern. So there are these names. And and honestly, um, Bernice, when I when you look at the census, there weren't that many single men, which is interesting, that these were families that came out. That is interesting that
1: you, you said there weren't many single men. And if a single man did come, I guess they had to do the male autobride the unless they found women somewhere else in the community
2: or in that little well,
1: town, or towns adjacent to um, the
2: town. Yes, there's only one person who's mentioned the mail-order bride story. She's in her uh, early 80s, and she sort of snickers when she says it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but but somehow, well, I know. my My aunt married my father's brother. She came out as a cook. She was single, and my father's brother came out, he was single, and they got married and moved to California. So there was some matching up once you got there um, as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I have a question. Uh, there's a caller on the line, area code 314. Do you have a question or a comment?
0: Yeah, I was uh, looking at your lead-in paragraph to this topic, and I was wondering, are there any remits, uh, descendants of... These uh, professionals that's around today in company that's in logging black companies do you know of?
2: Black logging companies. Mm-hmm. Um. Let's see. Someone told me recently that actually somewhere in the south, their fo- their ancestor, owned a logging company. These are all logging workers that were up in in Oregon now. As I mentioned, there were, as far as I know, there were some that were able to establish their own business as, um, they called them jippos, and I just never can out where that worked. Yeah, JIPOs, yeah. so you had your own little operation. So like this one, um, actually my aunt's brother, aunt by marriage's brother was a jippo. He ran his own uh, comp- uh, logging trucks, and I just was reading through an- another uncle's Memoir, and he drove logging truck for this this black uh, company owner. So I haven't actually found a lot of them, but they certainly did exist.
0: Yeah, I would be I interested to, to talk to some today.
2: I it's G Y P P O, or G Y P O. Okay, and, and the I caller do, you said, you know, said
1: that he would be interested in in. Uh, Talking to anyone today if if you found uh, any individuals.
0: Well, yeah, I would be interested in talking to some today uh, that would be in the logging business and uh, sharing with them some information on some great opportunities.
2: Oh, I, you mean that are in logging business now? Correct. Oh, it's that I don't find. know. Yeah, that I don't know. Um, this is all historical for me at this point, so i don't I really don't know if there are uh any in the logging business at this point but well, I would like to, go ahead
0: you know the story is interesting i was went to the website and looked up some of the ones that you mentioned, and they left the south whether they was in this particular adventure or anything else, or just going out searching. Because of the same reason, you know, you hear the story of the Scottsboro 9 and they was going up north and uh, how others was going uh, up to Milwaukee and many of them landed in Chicago and didn't, didn't go any further. So it's a very interesting story about that migration and the mm-hmm. reason why. And what's more interesting is that you're starting to see a reverse migration back to the south.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you even had some, if you you call it reverse migration back then. When my uncle's wife died, he was left with five children in Oregon, and he packed them up, and they moved back to Louisiana, and that's where all of them uh, finished and graduated college. They graduated Grambling and Southern. So he went back. There are others that went back to Texas and Florida. Now, the contemporary reverse migration is different, but back then, people went home. I mean, they did.
1: Okay. Well, thank you, caller, for calling in with your question. Uh, any que- any additional questions? Please feel free to uh, call, and I will certainly see you and bring you on. Uh, do you have any other information that you'd like to share with us about your research? Well, what I'd like,
2: I'm I'm um I'm I'm casting my fish net wide. And so I would like for anyone who's interested or who may know something that they could contribute or have any suggestions to be in touch with me. Uh, My name is Pearl Alice Marsh, and my email address is blackloggers at AOL.com. That's uh, one word, blackloggers at AOL.com. And I'd just like to make this a big uh, community adventure.
1: Wonderful. And I certainly hope that uh, those individuals that have been listening to the show today will get in contact with you so that, especially if they're descendants, you can just add to your database and then have them engaged in in interviewing and also looking at some of those pictures that you uh, mentioned. Well, believe it or not, it's close to the end of the show. Do you have any parting words before we move on?
2: Well, Bernice, I want to thank you so much for nudging me into doing this. You know, we always get a little uh, cold feet when it comes to doing a patient, but it made me organize my thoughts around how do I discuss a genealogy approach to, um, to the social reconstruction of our history, our social history. And I'm hoping to turn it, like I said, into a little um, guide on how to do this research. And I would just encourage people to, one, these company towns is just ripe for this kind of research. So if your ancestors went to a company town or went to a community or went to any, you know, place like that, to dig into the census records and begin to build that that history. Um, I would also, as I said, Recommended for churches. We have historic churches where there are very few people there, and the record keeping has gotten so weak over time that we can go back and reconstruct who were those original church members and how did that congregation grow and what did they do and who were they. So, this is a real entree into uh, our past, I think, a real window. And I would encourage, as I did with those Mexican born sawmill workers that people of other ethnicities should uncover their history as well. Um, Up in Wallowa County, it wasn't in logging, but in the silver mining industry, they brought Chinese labor into mine. Who were those Chinese workers? What were their names? Did they have family? Most of them didn't, but they had family somewhere. So I just encourage everybody to really begin to explore our past using the genealogy methodology to bring the social history alive.
1: Okay, and thank you so very much. And you're right, the methodology certainly can be replicated for a lot of different ways and a lot of different communities. So thank you so much, Dr. Pearl Alice Morsh, for coming on today. And remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, community records, and research at the National Archives and Beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bert. Bernice's B.B.'s Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday night. And this is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Have a good evening. Bye-bye, everybody.